0: Father, it is again a great opportunity for us, a great privilege for us to meet here this morning in order to separate ourselves from all the affairs of life, all of the responsibilities that we have in this life, and to fix our attention on your word and on you. We long for the Son of God to be honored, to be magnified, to be lifted up by all that we discuss and read and pray and, and consider together here this morning. We ask that you would exalt him by giving to us the fullness of the ministry of the Spirit to, to magnify our Savior in our sight and in our hearing and to be able to respond to him as we should. Turn our hearts, turn our affection so that we are filled with a knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we would know what it is to enter into that experience of being illumined by your Spirit so that the things of, of Christ are genuine, that they are real to us, and we we feed on them as our daily bread. Grant that nothing in this service would hinder that work for which we pray. We ask that no spirit here would so grieve your Holy Spirit that we would lose any blessing that you have for us this morning. We ask that this time would be entirely sanctified, that it would be set apart for your will to be accomplished And may we now worship you together in spirit and truth. For we do ask in our blessed Savior's name. Amen. Today we begin a message that is entitled, The Resurrection and the Lies. Not the resurrection and the life, the resurrection and the lies. We will address that lie, which was that the Lord's disciples had stolen his body in order to deceive the world with a false resurrection. We're going to dispute that lie that many Jews to this day still believe, but we're also going to go ahead and also refute all kinds of other false theories that men have advanced over the years in their endeavor to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a fraud. And we're going to refute them not only with the wealth of eyewitnesses, that uh, actually saw him resurrected, but we're also going to look at the additional wealth of circumstantial evidence that is provided to us, not in only in the scripture, but in history itself. So as we analyze these theories, and I'm excited about that, so make sure you come back in the fall. Unless the Lord returns, don't come back, okay? I hope you're not here. I hope you're not here to come back to Bible study if the Lord comes back. But um, I'm I'm looking forward to looking at some of those theories because some of them are just so ridiculous, so much fun. We're going to have a lot of fun just (laughs) tearing them apart. But I think you're going to find, like evolution, that it really takes more faith to believe in some of these theories than it does to just simply believe in the evidence provided to us in the scripture. So anyway, this lesson is entitled The Resurrection and the Lies, but this morning we're going to not be discussing any lies. We're going to continue with that very exciting and emotional scene right outside the empty tomb when the Lord Jesus made his first resurrection appearance and initially was thought to be the cemetery caretaker. Right? By Mary Magdalene. She thought he was the gardener of the cemetery, the cemetery caretaker. And I thought, aha, you know, that is exactly what he is. He is the cemetery caretaker. He knows where every one of the deceased bodies of his children lie in both the land and the sea cemeteries of this world. Does he not? He knows where their remains are, even if their remains are just their uniquely given DNA. He knows where they are. And one day he's going to call every one of those bodies. And guess what? Just in a twinkling of an eye, they're going to do exactly what he did on resurrection morning. They're going to come right up out of those graves. So he is indeed the cemetery caretaker of the world, isn't he? He is. But, of course, Mary was not thinking in such deep spiritual terms, was she? When she first saw Jesus, remember now she had turned her back when she got to the tomb for the second time. We we learned that she stooped down and looked in. She didn't actually ever go into the tomb. She stooped down, looked into it, saw the two angels sitting on either side of where the Lord's body had been. The empty grave clothes were in between. She saw the two angels and spoke to them and then turned her back on them after she gave them her erroneous oxymoronic message. Right. That somebody had taken the body of her Lord. That's what made it oxymoronic because you can't take the body of the Lord. He's in charge. You know, he took his own body. Anyway, she turned her back to those two angels, didn't she? And when she turned around away from the tomb, what happened? Smack dab right in front of her was the resurrected Lord Jesus. But she didn't know him. She didn't recognize him. She was looking for him dead, not alive. And so again she jumped to a false conclusion, just like she had when she said somebody's taken the my, my lord's body. Now she jumps to another false conclusion. That's the only exercise she was getting that morning other than running back and forth. She was jumping to false conclusions, and she thought he must be the gardener. So what did she do? Very politely she said sir and she pled with him um, to tell her where He had been taken if the gardener himself had taken him. Remember, she said him three times, never bothered to explain to the gardener who the him was. Of course, the gardener knew who the him was because he was the him. How's that for English? (laughs) Anyway, um, and what did she say? She said something absolutely ridiculous. She said, I will carry him. I will take him. Just tell me where you put him and I'll take him away myself. Sure, Mary. Uh, you know, probably at least 175 pounds. I, you, know, you can't add the 75 pounds of the grave clothes, really, because they're not, you know, they're still in the tomb. But if she had, the, if she was thinking carrying him off with the grave clothes, that would be about 250 pounds. If she was thinking of carrying him off without the grave clothes, is she going to go right through the city of Jerusalem carrying a naked man? You know, she's not thinking right, is she? She's not thinking right at all. Remember how we talked about the fact that her disbelief in the resurrection had not only resulted in her false theory that somebody had taken his body, and that's what happens with disbelief. Disbelief comes up with all kinds of false theories, doesn't it? All kinds of false cults and religions. But it had also caused, caused her to have spiritual blindness. And she didn't know Jesus when he was right in front of her. I don't even know that she knew those two guys were angels. And also it caused a lot of ignorance because she really didn't know much of anything. She didn't know where his body was. She didn't know about the angels. Uh, she didn't know him when she saw him. She didn't know who had taken him. She was full of ignorance. And of course, what else had her disbelief caused her that she didn't even need to ever have done? Shed, she didn't, sorrow, her sorrow. She didn't need to shed those tears. Remember, she's wailing. She didn't need any of that if she had only believed his promise that on the third day he would rise. Same thing was true with the disciples, right? They only believed the word of the Lord. So it caused a lot of trouble for her. Um, And she was a basket case. Her mind simply was not thinking right at all. And we looked at all of that last time. And we also saw how everything changed for Mary with just one word. And what was that one word? Mary. Mary. Mary her name exactly her name she knew the voice that spoke that name didn't she think about this okay remember she's turning all the time she's turning she gets to the tomb she stoops down she sees the angels she talks to the angels then she turns her back on the angels she sees Jesus she talks to Jesus thinking he's the garden gardener and she immediately did what turned again back to the tomb her focus was on the tomb her focus was on the dead body etc so she turned away from Jesus Okay, once she took her eyes off of Jesus, she was no longer distracted with her sense of sight, right? Ah, so then he says, Mary, and the only sense then operating is her audio, uh, audio, <laughs> her ears. And when she heard that voice, without the distraction of the, the face that didn't look the same, You know, she wasn't expecting to see him. So and I I don't know what he looked like. Obviously, he could change what he looked like because the guys on the road to Emmaus didn't know him either. but, But all she focused on was that voice. And the minute she heard that voice without the distraction of the face, she knew who it was. It was the voice that was so familiar to her. It was her good shepherd calling one of his sheep by name. And how do you think he said her name? Do you think he said Mary? Uh-uh, I think he said it softly and tenderly, Mary. Like, when remember when he said, Martha, Martha. <laughs> I think he said, Mary. And did you notice before, and last week, let's see, look at verse 15. Last week he had, the first time he addressed her, how did he address her? Woman, woman, woman exactly. Just as he had done the last time he spoke to his mother. Remember when he was on the cross and he commended her into the care of John and he called her woman? He said, woman, behold thy son. In both of those situations, he was making it clear that there was now a new relationship between him and them. They were no longer to think of him after the flesh as a physical son or as a great master rabbi to whom they could minister. And yet... He's making that clear, you know, new relationship, mom, (laughs) you're now woman, and new relationship, Mary, you know, you're now a woman, I'm your creator, you're the creation. But yet at the same time, we still find that in his second address to Mary, he was ever the compassionate good shepherd, comforting one of his herding sheep. And she was hurting, didn't he come to bind up the brokenhearted? And that's exactly what he's doing and when he called his little wailing sheep by her name just as it says in John 10:3 she knew that voice she knew her shepherd and instantly her despair turned into utter delight i cannot imagine the joy that flooded her soul and even though the scripture does not tell us directly we know from the lord's next words to mary that what did she do again All right, she turned her back on Jesus, focused again on the tomb. But when she heard him say, Mary, you know, she spun on her heels back to him, never to focus on the tomb and death again, right? She turned back to Jesus, and obviously, based on his next words, she lunged at him. (laughs) And she latched herself onto him in some kind of a great hug. Probably the same thing she had done years before when he had delivered her from her demonic possession. She probably lunged at him then, reached out to embrace him. As I said, there's just no way to imagine the joy that washed over her soul the moment that she realized Jesus was not dead. He was very much alive. He was standing right there in front of her, and he was not a spirit. He was resurrected bodily and she could feel him she she was touching him she was embracing him we're going to talk about that but he was alive bodily and she likely never wanted to let go of him again and so this is where we're going to pick up our account of the lord's first resurrection appearance and now that we have seen how mary magdalene came to believe in his resurrection took her a while didn't it takes the men even longer (laughs) But we are going to hear now the command and the commission that the Lord gave to her, which is in one verse, verse 17. We're going to spend a lot of time in that one verse. And then after briefly discussing the disciples' response to her report, you know, she does; she's given a commission to go tell the disciples a message. And when she gives that report, we find their response over in Mark's gospel. So we'll be turning to Mark. And then we're going to go back over to Matthew to look at the Lord's second resurrection appearance. And this time he appears to that first smaller group of Galilean women, the little group that had gone with Mary Magdalene originally to the tomb, you know, that consisted of the Lord's aunt Salome and the other Mary and probably Joanna and maybe even Susanna. We're going to look at those women as they are the first ones To I mean, the second ones to see the resurrected Lord Jesus. All right, so let's read now John chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. And this is right after, if you look at verse 16, right after Jesus had said to Mary, Mary, and she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Then, verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren... And say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Now, that's all John tells us. So for their response, like I said, we'll be going over to Mark later on. But the first thing we want to ask here (laughs) is why Jesus said to Mary, touch me not for I ascend to my father I have not yet ascended to my father and the reason we need to ask that question why did he say that is because there have been many many explanations for these words and a lot of them do not mesh with the Greek whenever there's a question what do you do we go to the original language and in this case it's Greek so we want to see what the Greek says to us it also a lot of their explanations do not mesh with other scripture and that's very important and also don't mesh with um, a proper understanding of the Lord's resurrected state. And you'll understand as I give you some examples. Let me give you some examples of how, how this has been translated. Some have suggested that the reason the Lord told Mary not to touch him is because his wounds were still sore. <laughs> and therefore he didn't want to be touched. Now what does that not mesh with? His resurrected condition... I mean, that's like more of the revived um, in the tomb theory, isn't it? That he just, you know, the coolness of the tomb brought him back to life. Can you imagine? And he got out of those 75 pounds of grave clothes, and, um, but he was still sore, so don't touch me. I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous, and it shows no understanding of the fact that his transformed body, although for out, throughout all of eternity... It retains the scars of his crucifixion in order to remind the redeemed throughout eternity eternity, what he willingly did for us. He will always look as the lamb that had been slain. He'll always have the nail prints in his wrists and in his feet and the scar in his side. That's what he showed Thomas, right? Even though he'll have those marks, yet that body was a new body it was a glorified body a resurrected body it did not feel pain any longer and aren't you glad for that would you like to look forward to heaven still feeling pain no right no more kidney stones no more rotator cuff problems and all that all that we encounter in this world no more pain I mean that is just ridiculous don't touch me because it's still sore and he had no more blood either. Do you know that? We won't have blood in heaven. Hmm. Are you going to miss it? No, I don't, I don't guess I'm going to miss it. And he it was in a body that wasn't limited by time, space, or matter. And either will we be. So much to look forward to in the new body. But that's just a ridiculous suggestion. Another one is that he didn't want Mary to touch him because she was ceremonially unclean for having been near the dead in a graveyard. Now that, would not be consistent at all with the Lord's nature. Even when he was in his flesh, bone, and blood body, his human body, he was never concerned about being defiled by anyone, was he? He even reached out and touched the lepers. He wasn't worried about being defiled by them because they were cleansed by him. He was so pure, they were cleansed and purified when he touched them. So how much more is this true in his resurrected body? Plus, guess what? Nobody... Nobody can defile God. He's God. You can't defile God. And why did he allow the women that we're going to look at in the second part of this lesson, why did he allow them to take hold of his feet as they worshipped him? Those w- women had actually gone into the tomb. You talk about being ceremonially unclean. They would be unclean, more unclean than Mary because she didn't actually even go into the tomb. But really the whole conversation is rather ridiculous because if he would, if she was ceremonially unclean, it was with regard to his body. So he's not going to be worried about being unclean from his own body. Plus there's the fact that he's God, his body was sinless, so his body wouldn't defile anybody. Didn't even defile Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Remember, we discussed that it probably would never have decayed according to the Psalms would not see corruption because there was no sin. But anyway, the whole thing is ridiculous. <laughs> um, all right, then there are those who say that Jesus could not be touched because he was a spirit being. And that is not biblical. That is not consistent with the fact that he was touched by the other women. Guess what? He was also touched by Mary. He's. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But he also, we know... When he entered into the upper room later on that day, what did he do with his disciples to prove that he wasn't a spirit? Well, that's the week later with Thomas. Um, but that night, he, he sat down and ate and drank with them. A spirit doesn't eat and drink. And then a week later, yes, he asked Thomas, touch, touch this, the, my scars and my you know, side. He was proving to them that he wasn't a spirit. Now, they thought he was when they first saw him, but he proved to them. Sufficiently we talk about we'll talk about this more in the fall, but um, he was not a spirit being And equally dumb (laughs) is the explanation that his resurrected body was so new It was just brand new that it was still delicate And it was sensitive to the touch of human beings Now I don't usually use this word, but that's just really stupid That's stupid. My children don't like me to say that word around my grandchildren. They said don't say stupid (laughs) Is that something when your children tell you how you have to talk in front of your grandchildren? (laughs) Uh, Now, others think that Jesus did not want a single woman. She was all by herself, okay? So he did not want a single woman to touch him because it was improper. There are also those, as you know, who try to make Jesus a sinner, a fornicator, by saying that he and Mary Magdalene were having an affair, they were lovers. And here he was now telling her that they could no longer continue in that relationship because he had to ascend to his father. So that's the end of that, Mary. That is blasphemous. That is blasphemous. Well, all of these suggestions make a common mistake. They all base their ideas on a faulty reading of the text. In order to know the meaning of Jesus's words, we have to look, as I said, at the original Greek. And we have to look at the verb tense for that word, touch. Now, the literal meaning of the Greek verb signifies a fastening of oneself to another so as to detain. In other words, clinging. She was clinging. And the verb is given in the present middle imperative with the genitive case. (laughs) Aren't you impressed? I have no idea what that means, but... (laughs) It means that he was telling Mary to stop doing something that she was already doing, okay? She was already touching him. She was actually clinging to him. You see, he wasn't trying to prevent her from touching him. She was already touching him. As she said, Rabboni, she spun around and she likely, as I said, lunged at him and had him in a big hug of some kind. That's what I picture The problem was that she kept holding him. Dr. A.T. Robertson, he translates the Lord's words as cease clinging to me. So if you want to write that in the margin, that's the way I look at it. Cease clinging to me. You see, his resurrection changed things. His bodily presence would no longer be with his followers. He was going to ascend to his father. And who was he going to send in his place? The Holy Spirit would be sent in his place. It would be far better for believers to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit than to just be physically present with the Lord because he could only be physically present with a certain amount of people at a time, whereas the Holy Spirit can indwell all of us. Believers would fellowship with him, as we do yet to this day, in the spiritual sense, but no longer in the physical sense. And Mary needed to understand this. It was not the simple touch of a human being that he was concerned about. That was not wrong for her to touch him because he does allow the next group of women to touch him, to hold on to his feet. And he encourages Thomas to do so. And as I said, he eats and drinks with them over the next 40 days. You know somebody touched him during the next 40 days before he does ascend to his father. However, Jesus was advising Mary, as when he called his own mother, woman, he was advising her that there was to be a new relationship between himself and humanity. The physical relationships that he had enjoyed during the past 33 years with his family and with his friends and and uh, with his disciples was going to change. Even his relationship with his foes, all of that was going to be different. His ascension would bring about a new situation. Actually, his resurrection brought about a new situation, but he would, would be with them for another 40 days. They could see him and they could touch him and... And that sort of thing. But when he ascended, he would no longer be seen. No longer be heard. Now we hear him through the word, don't we? And if you've seen him, don't tell me about it. I don't want to know. <laughs> and uh, we, can, we can't we can reach out and touch Jesus. It was to be a new and really a better relationship for Christians. Because it's eternal. He was only here on planet earth for how many years? 33 years. But our relationship is eternal. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's a much better. I used to think I'd like to have been there to see him when he was here on earth. But I realize that we have it much better. We really do. He dwells in us. Christ in us. All right. The issue was that Mary sought to retain the Lord, to keep him with all of them as it had been before his arrest and before his crucifixion. She had lost him once. And so it was natural for her to fear losing him again. But he doesn't want her doting on his physical presence and expecting his continual presence with them. You know, a great part of the joy that was set before him to allow him to endure the cross was that he was longing and looking forward to going back to his father in heaven, wasn't he? He was longing for that glory that he had had with his father since eternity past. He said that in his high priestly prayer, John 17. He said, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He was looking forward to being again in his unveiled divine glory. And he's going to have even more glory, or he does where we are in history, more glory than that. Because not only would he have his eternal glory returned to him, unveiled, But he would have the addition of his human resurrected glory. That was added to his eternal glory. He was now a glorified human, a glorified man in a resurrected body. And he was looking forward to that. Now you might ask, but didn't Jesus already ascend to his father? Any of you thinking of that question? We addressed this not too long ago. Remember when we talked about what Jesus did while his body was in the tomb? What did he do? Well, one of the things he did was he entered into the paradise section of Hades and he led captivity captive. He freed all the Old Testament saints up to the penitent thief. He, he freed them from that beautiful paradise, but they couldn't go into the presence of God. And he took them up into the third heaven because now they were fully atoned for. Right. They were fully cleansed. They came under the blood of the lamb. He had died for them before that. They were only covered. Remember? But now they were cleansed and so they could be before God. But remember, even though he ascended to his father when he took them, he he did that in his spirit, right? Not in his resurrected body. He hadn't resurrected until the third day, Sunday morning. So at this point with Mary, he had not yet ascended to his father in his resurrected body. Now here's something to consider. resurrection Sunday was also the Jewish feast of first fruits. You know that, right? We've talked about that. He died on Passover. And then we had the feast of unleavened bread, which began the very next day after Passover and continued on for a week. And then on Sunday of that week, they're all combined together. But on Sunday of that week was the feast of first fruits. And according to Mosaic law, the high priest of Israel. Who would have been Caiaphas at this time was required to take the sheaf of first fruits of the harvest and wave it before God. This is all in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ is what? The first fruits of the dead. Meaning, there's a great harvest to follow, right? We're going to be part of the harvest that follows. So, in keeping with the importance of the feast, Jesus, the great high priest, likely ascended to his Father in his resurrected body to present himself before his Father as the firstfruits of the resurrection. And it is suggested that he did this privately on that Sunday, which was the Feast of first fruit, that he did it privately. And it was, you know, therefore a separate event from his public ascension 40 days later described in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. Now some say that he did this early resurrection morning. I am more inclined to say that he did it after he talked to Mary sometime, maybe even, you know, after he appeared to the other women, because he told her I have not yet ascended to my father. But I I could guarantee you that he did appear on the feast of first fruits that Sunday privately he 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 Appeared before his father to fulfill the feast, okay, and uh, did it privately, and did it in his resurrected body, not his spirit. Of course, you know he's the first fruits of the resurrection, so obviously he would do that in his in his resurrected body. Okay, something else. I wonder if you notice that in this verse, this is the very very first time Jesus ever refers to his men, his disciples, as brethren. Yep first time he's called them servants and he's even called them his friends which was wonderful in John 15:15 15, 15, this is the first time he ever referred to them as brethren and if the women were there he would have said sisterin right <laughs> why does he call them um, brethren now? Because he has completed the work of redemption for them. It was completed with his resurrection. The gospel message was completed with a resurrection, and now, praise the Lord, they are part of the family of God just as you and I are. They are his brethren, brethren. They are He was the firstborn among many brethren, it tells us. Not only the first fruit of the resurrection, but the firstborn among many brethren. And even though, think about this, he easily could have sent his sent his men a message through Mary That went something like this. You sorry, no goods. You deserted me just in the time of my need. Couldn't he? I mean, because they did. They deserted him. One denied him. You know, they were just, John was the only one that was there at the cross. He could have sent them a message like that, but he didn't. Instead, he was not ashamed to call them his brethren as it says in Hebrews 2.11. Aren't you glad he's not ashamed to call you and I as sinful as we still are, even you know, though we're saved, we have our sin natures, but he's not ashamed to call us his sistren? <laughs> I don't know if that's the correct word. It sounds like something else. <laughs> but is that not wonderful grace? Isn't it? That is grace and that is gain. Grace and gain. Because brothers belong to the same family, which means that they share the same father and they share the same inheritance. The Lord's people are joint heirs with him. Does he have a rather large inheritance, you think? Yeah, very large. And we're joint heirs with him. That's amazing. That's grace and that's gain. And we're part of a great group. Of those privileged to call God, Abba, Father. It's amazing. And the Lord Jesus goes on. He gives uh, Mary a commission. After he says, you know, basically, don't cling, Mary. You've got work to do. Don't waste time hanging on to me. you got a commission here. I have a message for you to deliver. Go to my brethren and say to them. Now that is a command. And it is given, I'm going to impress you again, that's given in the present tense and in the imperative mood. Uh, Which together says, do it and do it now. Do it quickly. Mary's really done a lot of running, hasn't she? She's getting her morning exercise. But he says, do it quickly. And what was the message that she was to carry to the Lord's brethren? She was to say unto them, from Jesus, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now here is why the Lord, or here is the Lord explaining why he calls them now his brethren. It's because... They do have the same father. But be sure to notice the exact words here, the exact wording, because this is important. He didn't say, I ascend to our father. He didn't say, "An our God. Why not? If his men were his brethren, why not? Well, it's because his sonship is significantly different from believers' sonship. Never once throughout the Gospel accounts do we read where Jesus used the phrase, our Father or our God, when he was speaking jointly of his relationship to God and believers' relationship to God. We believers together, we together can say our Father, as he taught us to do in Matthew 6, 9, I think it is, when he taught us what we call the Lord's Prayer, but really isn't the Lord's Prayer because he would never have prayed that prayer. He wouldn't ever pray for his trespasses to be forgiven because he didn't have any. He was teaching us how to pray. That should be called the disciples' prayer, right? We corporately can say our father because we're on an equal standing before God. But Christ's relationship to the father is different. God is his father by way of, of eternal sonship. He and the father are one in nature one in their essence, one in their being. Remember when he said, I and my father are one? Actually, the word my is not in that sentence, John ten thirty, 30. It's I and father are one. So his sonship is by way of eternal sonship, where ours is by way of gracious adoption. We're not of the same essence as God, but we've been adopted into the family of God. And uh, it is only by our faith in the eternal son of God and our spiritual relationship with him, with the son, that gives us the privilege to call God almighty, Abba, our father or daddy. Really, Abba is like daddy. Isn't that intimate? That's wonderful. And notice that he also gave himself the preeminency. He is always to have the preeminency. He said first, my father before he said your father and he said my god before he said your god now at least that was pretty music right <laughs> now of course in giving to the disciples the message that she was instructed to give which was that you know go to my brother and tell him i have not yet ascended unto my father and then you know and your father etc don't you know that of course mary would also include her ecstatic report that she had seen and talked to and touched the Lord, which would mean, of course, that he was alive, that he was resurrected. And she would tell them that she held on to him, which would tell them he was bodily resurrected. And to prove that she had actually seen him and talked to him and touched him, the message that she was to carry was a message that the men should definitely have recognized as having been from him, because he they alone were with him in the upper room When you know the night of the arrest when he gave to them his farewell discourse and I don't know six or seven times he actually told them that he was going to ascend to the father he was going to return to the father he was going to go to the father and build dwelling places for all of us and he said it over and over again I've got the verses here but I won't take the time to tell you but he told them he was going to return to the father so when they heard the message through Mary I ascend to my father that was for them to remember his words and to confirm the truth of her message that she had actually seen him, because otherwise she wouldn't know that, would she? It was the same thing when he gave the other women the message about going to Galilee. It was to confirm their message that he was not there, he had risen, they had seen the angels, they had seen the empty grave clothes. Are you following me or am I going too fast? i got to go fast because of time. I wish I could slow down. All right, well, the Lord was also communicating to his men the fact that his resurrection was only a step toward his ascension he had not risen from the dead so that he could stay with them indefinitely on earth. Israel had corporately as a nation rejected him. What had she done? She had crucified him and therefore the kingdom of God on earth had to be postponed, right? It's still postponed. He will set it up. Once Israel finally turns to him in belief, which will be after the tribulation. But, um, He had to to ascend to his father where he would be busy. He is very busy. As the head of the church, where the body, he's the head of the church. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, which is a promise that we too will resurrect. He is our great high priest interceding on our behalf. He's our advocate uh, against our adversary, Satan. And I know I keep him busy just on that one job. (laughs) And where, of course, what else is he doing as our carpenter? busily preparing our dwelling places in his father's house. And he does so much more. He holds the universe together. (laughs) Wow. But all of this fits with his message to Mary, to not cling to him because he was not going to remain on earth. He was going to ascend, which means that he would have a different relationship from his physical presence. Now, the Lord's implied promise to his disciples and all his followers through the coming centuries was this. Here's his implied promise, okay? God is not only my God and my Father. He is also your God and he is your Father. As a result of your faith in me. This means, you see, that because I live, Jesus is saying, because I live, ye shall live also. And because I ascend to my Father, you too will one day ascend to him. Because he's also your Father. That's exciting, isn't it? It was and it is a message of great truth and comfort for us. Now, it should have been a message of great comfort for the disciples when it was brought to them by Mary Magdalene. And you would think that she would notice she was a lot different than the last time they saw her. Right? What a change in a woman. She had been so sure last time she came running in that the Lord's body had been stolen. And, uh, that's the report she gave not only to men, but to angels. She gave that false report to men and angels, and she was so sure of it, and she was such a mess, and she was wailing and weeping and just a nervous basket case turning and running and turning again. And and now she comes in with a far different story and a far different spirit. I can't imagine the joy on her face. She must have been radiant. I mean, she'd just seen angels. And then she'd just seen and talked to Jesus. So she must have been glowing. And good for Mary. She obeyed the Lord. Yes, good girl. She stopped clinging and she set off to fulfill her duty and and did so joyfully. And John concludes his report of her testimony, what it took for her to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, by telling us in verse 18 that she came and she told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Now, if we want to know the condition of the disciples before Mary's new message, we turn to Mark. All right, so let's go over to Mark. Mark tells us in chapter 16, verse 10, their condition when Mary comes running into the room wherever they are, okay? Okay. and their condition their mental state was much like Mary's had been before she had seen Jesus with her own two eyes look at mark 16:10 it says well let me read back up and tell you what mark says about mary <clears throat> it says in verse 9 now when jesus was risen early the first day of the week he appeared first to mary magdalene that's how we know she was the first one he appeared to out of whom he had cast seven devils and now he doesn't give us any of the details right none of the details about Mary at the tomb we had to learn those from John but mark just goes on and says and she went and told them the disciples that had been with him as they mourned and wept so what was their condition when she came to them before you know before she gave them her message great sorrow the disciples now these are men and guess what I looked up that word wept and it's the same word as wailing as Mary was wailing outside the tomb the men are wailing. They are very, very, very distraught. All right, so we also have to look at Mark's account to learn what the disciples were like after Mary shared with them the great news that Jesus was alive and she had seen him and she had talked with him and then gave them his message about his ascension into heaven to, see, to be with his father which she wouldn't have known unless she had indeed spoken to the Lord. So what's their condition after she gives them this wonderful news? Look at verse 11. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, what? Believe not. Mary's report did not lift their spirits at all. Amazing, isn't it? Why didn't it lift their spirits? Disbelief. They didn't believe. She'd had a better reception when she had come running to them with a false message than she did when she came running with the true message. Isn't that the way of the world? That's that, you know, at least two of the disciples had run out to investigate and see, you know, if the Lord's body was missing, Peter and John. Now when she gives her true report, nobody takes off to see, well, let's see if we can go to the tomb and maybe he'll appear to us. <laughs> see angels, you know, they were just scorning in their mind. This is a woman with seven and once had seven demons, you know, they don't pay any attention to her. They disbelieve her. The important thing, however, is that Mary fulfilled her commission. And that same thing is true to us with us. We, you know, we are to proclaim the word of God, whether it is received or not, aren't we? That is our task. We are to sow the seed. The rest is up to the Lord, whether people receive it or not. Yeah, I went to the hairdresser uh, about a week ago and my hairdresser told me she said she said, oh, I had a woman. She came in and she was sitting in that chair waiting while I was. She was working on one of the ladies that goes to our church, a real godly woman, real godly woman. And my hairdresser and this woman were having a conversation. You know how we do? We just talk about the Lord. And we say, Lord willing, we use little expressions like that. And they were just having a little conversation, probably about church and different things. Well, when she was finished with her client and she left, this godly woman left, this other woman got in the chair and she rolled her eyes and she said, Man, is she a holy roller. And then she said to my hairdresser, who told me the story directly, she said, What is all this born-again BS? And she said the whole thing. Oh, my. I mean, that's, that's the way it's getting. And Carrie was like, ah, she knows the woman goes to church. She does. She goes to a church in West End. Remember that church we talked about? And you all wrote letters to that pastor who doesn't believe that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't. He believes that other people put the words in Jesus' mouth and he didn't really say all those things. He's still a pastor in West End. Well, Carrie, my hairdresser, asked this woman, why do you go to church if you don't believe in Jesus' words about being born again? And she said she caught the woman off guard. She said she was silent for a while. And then she said, well, I guess I go for social reasons and community. Have you heard that? Community. And at least she was honest. (laughs) And then Carrie asked where she went, and she went to that church. Just, mm -mm mm-mm-mm. We have another church, and I probably shouldn't bring that up. I won't bring that up, but anyhow. Our job is to, you know, our job is to just be faithful like Mary to give give the truth. Um, The Lord never promised that faithfulness to his commission would always bring good results. Did he? If he had, Noah would have been considered a total failure, (laughs) and most of the Old Testament prophets would be considered total failures. And really, if you get right down to it, Jesus would have been considered a failure. Because he only had 12 disciples, and one of them was an apostate. And remember his Bread of Life sermon in John chapter 6? He had many disciples at one time. But when he spoke that sermon, um, they all left except the 12. So the disciples did not at first believe, did they? Not at all. Not at all. That's why I, I, I think it's funny what one of my commentators <laughs> said you know, if the disciples finally believe, then it must be true. <laughs> Because it took an awful lot to convince them. But when they came around, oh my, when they finally came around and did believe, they became the foundation of an institution against which the gates of hell itself cannot prevail. Amen. All right, let's look to Matthew now. Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10. Matthew 28, 9 and 10. This is his second resurrection appearance. And if you look back at the preceding verses, I won't take the time to read, but this is that same first group that, you know, Mary got to the tomb first because she probably ran ahead of these other women. But this is the group that consisted of Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome, the mother of James and John, the Lord's aunt. And probably Joanna and probably Susanna. And remember, they actually stayed at the tomb. Mary ran away to go tell Peter and John. These women stayed at the tomb. Therefore, they spoke to the tombstone angel who invited them to go into the tomb, come and see. And they actually saw the empty grave clothes. All right. And then they were given the message to go uh, to the disciples, tell them that he's risen from the dead and that Jesus would go before them to Galilee. And so in verse eight, it says, and they departed quickly from the sepulcher with great, uh, with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. And verse nine says, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them all of a sudden there he is. And what does he say to them? Kind of strange, all hail, (laughs) all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. All right. Um, In the meantime, this is in the meantime, from what was going on with Mary Magdalene at the tomb, you know, and then meeting Jesus. Well, in the meantime, this group of women, I guess they're a lot slower. Remember, they're older. They've got sons old enough to be apostles, so they're slower, and they're, they're going... They're different ways, well, they're obviously together, but they're going to find the scattered disciples, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So I don't know where they are exactly en route, but somewhere along the way, they're going to tell the disciples their great news. And all of a sudden, behold, there is Jesus, smack dab again, right in front of them, as he had been with Mary. And he says, all hail. Now that was a common Jewish greeting or salutation. It wasn't shalom. But it was another expression that was very common. It was kind of like saying hello, but it also included in its meaning grace and peace. It's like saying hello, grace and peace be unto you. This was the same greeting that that great hypocrite Judas Iscariot had given to the Lord when he walked up to him in the Garden of Gethsemane to betray him with his satanic kiss. Remember, he said, Hail, Master. There was no grace or rejoicing in that greeting, was there? That was hypocritical. It's also the same greeting used by Pilate's soldiers when they mocked Jesus as they were scourging him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. Was there any grace or rejoicing in that greeting? Obviously not. Um, But the Lord, the Lord never spoke. A single word ingenuously he didn't speak any words hypocritically or even flippantly like we do we do it all the time you know hi how are you but you don't stop to hear how they really are do you sometimes you don't want to stop to hear how they really are (laughs) just and how many times do we just say fine and we're not fine at all we're hurting really badly some of us inside but we say fine anyway don't we but he never did that when he appeared before these women His word, which is just one word in the Greek, was a greeting that was significant. It was significant. It was like he was saying, Hello, my dear faithful women. Hi, Aunt Salome. (laughs) You have been with me every single step of the gospel road. And they had been, hadn't they? Every step. The disciples weren't. They were there for his Death at the crucifixion site, they were there watching him be buried and they were there at the tomb for the resurrection. You've been with me every step of the way and now I greet you with grace and with joy. There is no more appropriate greeting to receive on resurrection morning because it was the ultimate display of God's grace, was it not? That his son rose from the dead. And it is the ultimate reason to rejoice. Without the resurrection, ladies, there'd be no reason to rejoice. We ought ought to all just wail, wail and wail and wail throughout eternity without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with that simple but wonderful greeting, can you imagine, (laughs) to their ears and the sight of him with their eyes, what did these women do? Did they lunge at him and embrace him in a big bear hug like Mary had done? Exactly right. They fell at his feet. These women immediately both recognized him and his voice. And most appropriately, they fell down before him. They held onto his feet and they worshipped him. Now that is the right response. That is the right response. It was a response that demonstrated their hearts, their true devotion to one they recognize as Savior and God. And it, it demonstrated their humility, and they were demonstrating their honor of him. They immediately recognized him as the one who was deserving to, to receive their honor and one before whom they should bow the knee. They held him by his feet in their love, not to cling to him and hold him here on planet Earth, but in worship. And I'm sure they noticed the scar from the nail that had been hammered through his feet. And notice he allowed them to do that, didn't he? He allowed them. Would the angels have allowed them to worship them? No, but he did. He allowed them to worship him because he is indeed God. He is the son of God. He is the eternal God. Now, Mary's clinging did not involve worship. When she was clinging to him, there was no worship there. It was more of an expression of desire to retain him on earth. Therefore, now this is interesting. Mary wanted to cling to him. She wanted to keep him on earth, right? With her forever, with all of them forever. So what message did she give get to give? She got the ascension message, the heaven message, which speaks of the new spiritual relationship to him. You know, she wanted to keep him on earth, so she got the heaven message. These women, on the other hand, had something much higher in mind than natural earthly affection. They were acknowledging his deity. And so they got the message about he would meet his disciples in Galilee. You see, they got the earth message. They got the news, you know, we're willing to worship you as God. And so they got the message, well, I'm going to be around for a little while. You know, they don't know the 40-day thing, but isn't that interesting? One got the heaven message because she wanted to keep him here. The others got the earth message because they were willing to let him go. They knew who he was. Now, why do you think that these women so easily and so readily recognized Jesus? Um, They didn't think that he was the cemetery keeper. They didn't think he was the gardener. They didn't think that he was just a spirit apparition, as the disciples will do when he walks into the upper room. They're scared because they think he's a ghost. And they don't think that he's just another traveler on the road to Emmaus, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus later that they do. You know, and they're telling him the whole story about Jesus, not recognizing him. So why did these women immediately know him? And, and fall down to worship him? What made the difference? Well, I believe that it's because they had been prepared by angelic messengers at the tomb who had said, he is not here, he is risen. Um, And they had also been prepared by accepting the invitation to enter into the tomb and see the evidence of the empty grave clothes. You see, they believed both the angelic message and the supernatural evidence in the tomb and therefore their hearts were prepared to be holding him alive, right? Mary wasn't expecting to see him alive, either were the disciples, but they were prepared to see him alive. They weren't focused, as Mary Magdalene had been, they weren't focused on him still being dead, and, uh, you know, just that the fact that his body was missing. Their focus was on a living Savior. So when he was suddenly before them, he recog- They recognized him and they welcomed him with proper reverence. You know, when he says to them in verse 10, be not afraid, that's a reverential fear that they have for him as knowing who he is. Um, they understood that they were in the presence of deity. Do you think that we're going to recognize Jesus when we see him and know his voice? Oh, yeah, because have we been prepared? Because we believe the message, right? We believe the eyewitnesses. We believe the report of the scripture. So when your heart is prepared and you don't go with disbelief, you have belief, I believe we're instantly going to know that that's him when we see him. And that's exciting to look forward to. These women got it right. They understood Jesus was risen. He is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed the divine savior of of the world, the son of God, the eternal son of God. And they fell down before him and worshipped him. So let's remember that he is indeed worthy of worship, isn't he? Oh, yes. Let's pray. Father, actually, we think about these women. They did what every person one day will do before the presence of the glorified Lord Jesus. We are told in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether willingly or unwillingly, they will. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you, Father. How we long for that day when every person who has or will ever live bows before your eternal Son and confesses him as Lord. And he will at long last receive the honor he is so due. And for those of us who have come to Christ for the only hope, only hope of salvation we long to be in experience as you already see us today. We will be unified. We will be sanctified. And we will be glorified because of the finished work and the intercessory prayers of our Savior. And our faith will be turned to glorious sight. And we will see him as he is, and we will know him, we will see his unimaginable glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that sure hope. Thank you for the promise that you keep us until that day when we are going to be delivered out of this evil, wicked world into your holy and eternal presence. And in your presence we know there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. No more needs. No more greeds, no more temptations, no more sins, no more separations, no more tears. Nothing but unmixed, undiluted glory and wonder and joy and love and fellowship and absolute satisfaction and delight forever and ever and ever. So we say, Maranatha, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.